Hello and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rsc.org.uk. Today I'm speaking with Professor James Curran and Professor Duncan McLennan. James is a former Chief Executive of the Scottish Environment Protection Agency, serves on the board of the Green Purposes Company and is Chair of Climate Ready Clyde. Duncan is Professor of Public Policy at the University of Glasgow, Professorial Research Fellow in Urban Economics at the University of New South Wales, and has worked for many years on the areas of housing, infrastructure and neighbourhoods. So who better than James and Duncan to talk to us today about the impact and implications of climate change in Scotland cities? So James and Duncan, cities are often obviously a major source of emissions, whether that's from industry or the housing stock or from transport or the way that we use land. Um, in headline terms, how do we make our urban areas more compatible with, with climate goals? Duncan, do you want to kick off? Yeah, I think, I think there's uh, three things. You're absolutely right that uh, when you look on a global scale, that cities are always seen as a major uh, uh, contributors. Um, in fact, I think there was some recent American work that suggested 25 cities produce 50% of uh, carbon emissions. Interestingly, and uh, in, in this area, which is sometimes not very scientific, uh, none of these cities appear to be in the United States. They were mostly in China or Japan or India. Uh, so despite uh, that uh, caveat about how we look at this, of course, the nature of cities is they're concentrated in location. Uh, that scale, concentration, and the specialization that goes with them is at the heart of cityness, but it's also at the heart of the difficulty that we have uh, in terms of the impact on nature and use of uh, natural capital. So to, to answer your question, uh, Rebecca, I think that there are three things. We have to think about cities uh, in relation to the environmental systems they're set in. If we define Glasgow, if you want to define Glasgow, you'll see it defined by travel to work areas. It's not defined by the energy flows, the water flows, in other words, the reach of the city. And I think that's an important first step. What we have to think of in policy and governance in Scotland is what do we really mean by city when we embrace environmental agenda. So whether you're talking about ecosystem services or flows of environmental uh, goods and bads, uh, I think we need to rethink our uh, workable uh, conception of city. Second thing is within cities. Um, I spent a bit of time at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1980s, and uh, Anne Whiston Spurn wrote a fabulous book at that time about nature and cities called the Granite Garden, just making the point about how we dig our gardens, how we build our homes, how we lay out our streets it has a huge effect on water absorption, reflection of uh, heat and so on. And so much of that good common sense has been ignored for uh, uh, much too long. 
And then finally, we get to uh, the, the question of how we use the systems and how we design the bigger macrostructures of spatial planning and neighbourhoods within cities so that we allow people to live as locally as possible. In other words, our city has to be local and it has to have a global reach. And we've only really just started thinking about that. Thanks so much. And what about for, for you, James? I know you've done a lot sort of thinking about and, and working on nature-based solutions. Is, is that something we can draw on heavily in terms of helping that ad- adaptation process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when we think about cities and, and how they can be compatible with climate goals, you're right, we've got to think about mitigation, reducing, re- reducing emissions uh, in order to fix, if you like, the problem of climate change. But there's a lot of climate change we're now landed with. We, we can't avoid it. So cities are going to have to adapt in order to make themselves safer and healthier places in the future. Um, I certainly want to pick up on something Duncan said there, because when we come to looking at mitigating climate change, so reducing emissions, we really know, you know, most, if not all, the technical solutions. Um, but in a sense, we've done some of the easy stuff. It may not have seemed easy up to this point, but believe me, we've we've done the easier bits anyway. And that is a kind of national strategic approach to reducing emissions from energy production. And Scotland has been really a global leader in developing and deploying renewable energies largely onshore and much more recently offshore wind generation, a bit of solar and so on. Uh, We've made fantastic strides on that. But now comes actually the much more difficult bit, which is about our own personal travel, which is really important, as Duncan said, in and around cities. It's about how we heat our homes. You know, we, we all live in flats or houses or whatever in, in our cities, and about the way we consume. And these are very personal matters. And I think now we move from the national strategic kind of uh, impact of tackling climate change to a much more personal one and a much more local one, just as Duncan said. So, so that means it becomes genuinely more of a cultural issue. Now, that's for mitigation. And you know, I've been thinking along those lines recently because, as you mentioned at the front end, I've got a lot to do with Climate Ready Clyde, which has developed and now published a climate change adaptation strategy and action plan for Glasgow City Region. And that is so largely local um, because every locality has its own climate impact. So the solutions need to be local. And so both of them, mitigation and adaptation, are moving into that much more personal, much more local realm. And to me, that makes it quite deeply cultural. And that's a big shift in our thinking. I think we could uh, split cultural into a couple of things. Uh, uh, There's a political culture and there's the culture of individuals and organisations. And I I think that uh, people have written that, you know, to do much better both on Uh, adaptation and mitigation. We need a revolution in in science. Uh, That, I think, has made really impressive progress uh, looking at climate change science. We needed new technologies, not least in energy. And I think, again, we've had a phenomenal uh, development of new technologies in relation to energy. Uh, People say we need a, a, a revolution in finance. And I personally think that a lot of the developments in green finance uh, have been really very effective in terms of thinking about uh, the mechanisms. 
the problem, the cultural use is in terms of using uh, these technologies, that science uh, gets down to how, what does politics decide to do and what do individuals decide to do? And I don't think we've done, we've not done the social science work uh, that helps us understand much better how we induce people to change, how they react to taxes, how they will react to education programs and so on. I think that's been left behind as a social scientist. I think that's been left behind. And a lot of what, when we get to policy discussion, you, you basically set beside a really much richer science and technology understanding with actually what are pretty quite often uh, virtue-seeking uh, interpretations of what we do and where we go. Now, I have no, no objection to being virtue-seeking, and I agree fundamentally with the objectives that we have, but the social science in this is poorly developed, I would say. I think that's really interesting, and it actually takes me back when I, I was in government when the uh, first climate change bill was going through. And at the time, and certainly in the year or so afterwards, there was, a, there was a, a huge emphasis, I felt, in terms of the technical fixes. And of course, at the time, we were main, mainly looking at production emissions rather than consumption emissions. And I think we've seen the shift in that over time. I was involved in setting up a, a climate change behaviours programme, which was trying to address that uh, research programme. And one of the key things though, about that was, yes, there was a lot that was about our individual choices in terms of weight, the way we live our lives. But there was also about actually how so much of our behaviours is also influenced by how easy or, other thing, or difficult something is to do. And I was thinking, just connecting with the point that you were making, um, James, about the importance of the local as well. You know, we are hearing more and more about 20 minutes neighbourhoods. I think that's, that's an area you've worked on, Duncan. I, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about that sort of concept and, and why that's important and, and how that sort of links behaviours with infrastructure? Based largely on two ideas, one that came out of uh, Melbourne, and another that's come out of the experience in Paris, uh, I think that fairly uncritically, uh, professions, the planning professions uh, particularly, have adopted the idea of uh, sometimes it's a 10-minute uh, neighbourhood, sometimes it's a 15-minute neighbourhood, sometimes it's a 20-minute neighbourhood, and then sometimes people say city. And that reflects something about the fuzziness of the thinking. I think we all agree uh, that uh, everybody should have access to good infrastructure and good services. Uh, and that's particularly true of low-income households. Um, but what we have done is people have generalised that idea, which actually underpinned the Christie Commission uh, on service provision in uh, 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 Scotland, what, 12, 15 years ago, and has not been implemented uh, with the idea of, oh, 10-minute uh, neighbourhood um, without thinking about what does research and study on neighbourhoods, of which there is a substantial amount, what does it actually tell us about neighbourhoods, neighbourhood structures and how they work and why they operate? And my biggest objection to the idea, not the aims, but the specification of the idea, is it simply ignores the economic logic of cities. Uh, if you look at employment and layer locations within cities, you're not going to disperse employment evenly across the city uh, because agglomeration economies, scale economies actually matter. Therefore, you can't create neighbourhoods with equal access to employment. Uh, equally, in terms of the facilities and services, yes, we can all have a corner shop, but we can't all have a specialist, high-level medical clinical facility within our, our neighbourhood. It doesn't happen. 
On the other hand, we don't have to have people living in the privileged states of Glasgow or Edinburgh spending two and a half hours taking their child to a clinic and getting back home again. You know, we need to do better. Uh, but I do think uh, the notion that we can look along this actually works for middle-class neighbourhoods and gentrified neighbourhoods close to city centres. I'm an academic. I could organise uh, a really good 15-minute uh, neighbourhood just off Byers Road near Glasgow University. I could do it in Stockbridge. I could do it in Bellevue. I could probably do it in bits of Aberdeen or Dundee because there's lots of facilities. There's a diversity of people, and often with quite high incomes. You go out to Drumchapel or Castle Mill or Wester Hills, there's inadequate service provision. People have low incomes. Uh, and if you look at the expenditure uh, to actually raise uh, service provision and infrastructures to standard in these localities, the budgets are much bigger than the existing city deals. So what I want is uh, planning uh, profession and the Scottish government, who have this in the uh, programme for government, be real about this. Have a neighbourhood reinvestment strategy. Redevelop community planning so that communities actually talk to the people doing the planning. That's not community planning. I worked as advisor to three first ministers, uh, and community planning at that time was about how we got bureaucrats to talk to communities. Now it's just how national bureaucrats talk to local bureaucrats, and the communities don't really feature in any of this. So I actually think you can get to many of the aims with a much more focused conversation on delivery, on strategy, uh, on infrastructure strategy, service strategy. And that's what's missing. I mean, I, I do appreciate there are lots of good initiatives in Glasgow. There's no coherent infrastructure for the Glasgow city region. Uh, I've done some work on this uh, recently. There isn't any neighbourhood investment uh, 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 strategy for any of our cities. And that's where we have to go with this. I mean, we can really make progress, but let's cut out the uh, fancy language and get to the realities of taking decisions about this. And James, how, how far is the local and what does local mean in terms of the work you've been doing with Climate Ready, Ready Clyde? Do you, is that work thinking about a neighbourhood basis or think about a regional, regional or is it thinking about the interconnectivity between different spatial scales? Yeah, it, it necessarily works across all of those scales. I mean, it is a Glasgow city region uh, strategy and action plan, which, you know, we're, we're now pursuing the, the, the activities that are required by it. But most of those activities are quite localised. So, so there is a need to get that kind of community-based co-development and co-delivery. And um, there are all sorts of implications there because uh, certainly it needs government uh, backing. It, it's going to need funding, and we, we may be able to come back to that later on because it is a really critical point. Uh, Glasgow is currently being hugely ambitious in its uh, in intentions for investing. Um, but, you know, that money, that scale of money, that's 30 billion or something, <laughs> uh, has been sketched out as a, as a good investment in Glasgow and its region. Much of that is going to have to come from private investors. And we've got to find new ways of getting that private investment in alongside but exceeding the amount of public investment. And that's a particular problem when you're looking at the local level, where the 
investments may actually be quite small. So we need to find ways to aggregate them up into bigger scale investment opportunities. And of course, make those investments give a decent rate of return uh, for the risk being borne. So that there's so much in unpacking this issue about a 20-minute neighbourhood and so on. I'm I'm a great believer in it, and I'll I'll agree with Duncan on many points, but maybe disagree on some other points. I think in terms of adaptation, yes, we've got to make our our neighbourhoods, our communities, much more resilient to the impacts of climate change, and that involves. And you mentioned it earlier quite a bit of nature-based um, solutions, putting in additional green spaces, green roofs, so we get shading and cooling, using those green spaces very effectively for multiple co-benefits, maybe outdoor cafes, play areas, sports areas, pathways, cycleways, allowing people to walk to work, to the shops, you know, the very core of a 20-minute neighbourhood, um, walking to bus stops and train stations so you still get the connectivity, maybe allowing for soakaways so you reduce sewer and river flooding downstream. I mean, the, trying to grasp those multiple benefits means breaking down lots and lots of boundaries, both uh, disciplinary, professional ones, and also governance ones. Um, so, you know, the, the, there's a lot there straight away, um, and there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done. But the, the one area where I might disagree to some extent with Duncan is that I think a very core element as well of climate change adaptation is developing the circular economy. Uh, the circular economy is far, far more than just recycling. It's about redesigning all of our products so that they can be uh, uh, re-repaired, re um, upgraded, uh, disassembled, the parts reused, and at the very end, if need be, recycled. So all of that drives a much more local economy, and the opportunity for community-based jobs is very significant. It goes against this, um, the, the, this history we've had of, over the last few decades of globalism, absolutely. It's much more localism of a lot of employment, and it's high job content, it's high GDP, they're good jobs, and they do sit within a community. So, you know, just talking about a 20-minute neighbourhood, and the both of us have gone on for, I don't know, a quarter of an hour already, and we're only touching the surface on it. I can see Duncan's itching to get back in. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there's a couple of points. Um, I, I share the objectives uh, of uh, being more local, and I don't object to the notion of the circular economy at all in terms of designing and reusing materials and not depleting more nature and more natural capital. I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, I'm trying to suggest that, in fact, uh, when James says, yes, it's good for people to walk to work and, 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 and so on, that's great. Try walking from Castle Milk uh, to your relatively low-income job in Glasgow city centre. That's not much of a deal, James. Uh, and what I'm worried here is that the 10, 20 minute neighborhood becomes the new enthusiastic language in which people like us actually do much better. But people who are poor, and that's at least 40% of the population in Glasgow, this is a new language of failure of delivery in public policy for them. So that's that because I've spent a lot of my life studying what neighborhoods are and how they function, 
none of that uh, notion about what neighbourhoods are and how they function appears much in this. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to be a kind of unicorn on this and just be hopelessly optimistic. We've got to be hard-headed about making it work. As for the money, um, I don't. I think that um, whilst agreeing that the circular economy is important, not very many cities ever thrive by taking in their own washing, so to speak. Uh, they trade, uh, and they have to be competitive to trade. Now, that doesn't mean ignore natural capital. And this is where these debates in public policy have to get grounded out. We don't have a growth conversation in Scotland anymore uh, for a variety of reasons. And I'm very happy that we've gone beyond GDP in our thinking. But where will productivity come from? How will we compete? Because we won't have cities that aren't, training, that aren't trading globally and internationally. We have to think about boosting the importance and role of the local and localising as much as of life as we can. But we will not localise trade and we won't localise the flow of ideas because if we do, we will be much poorer. So it sounds like you both um, both think the economy needs to be different, but maybe you have different ideas of uh, how it's how it's uh, structured and, and, and played out. Um, I wonder if, if Duncan, if I mean, you said it's quite a lot of money. Um, to actually, you know, to equalise things. I was and one of another podcast I was talking about just transition with Jim Skay and Camila Tolman, and there is that, that just transition. I think is what you're what you're talking about partly here, or the, the fairness agenda, if you like. So what you talked about, um, I think you've mentioned something like 0.75 billion, which is clearly a lot of money. Um, but actually, is this or should this be a catalyst for that sort of change? Well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly. The basis. Uh, I'm not questioning the basis of uh, James' 45 uh, uh, million or or, or or billion even. Uh, I, I just don't know what it's made up of. But I do know that in uh, the big picture thinking structure for uh, cities, the 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 cities that uh, or parts of Scotland that grow are very different uh, animals to deal with in this regard from those that are still declining. And that's uh, the Glasgow city region. Uh, we have Western Bartonshire and we have Inverclyde, where there's still population decline, where there's still economic decline. At the same time, we have a very large amount of vacant land in Glasgow city centre, close to the new innovation zones, close to where the Glasgow connectivity strategy is. So how in that city region do you decide? Do you decide that every neighbourhood that we have now uh, will still be there in a hundred years' time? I mean, people talk of a new industrial revolution. You don't have industrial revolutions without spatial change. Spatial change is always imbalanced. I'm sorry to appear to, and I'm not seeking to be disagreeable here. I'm just pointing out what the evidence is from regional and urban economics and geography on this. We have to think about what the patterns are and how they unfold. So when you deal with something like Glasgow, the budget for dealing with the Glasgow city region, these issues is completely different. If you take an even spread approach from saying, okay, there's huge potential to relocate population and enterprise and economic activity into denser structures round about, uh, you know, within two to three miles of Glasgow city centre. The politics of that are just impossible 
for local government. I'm, I'm, I'm not, not suggesting this is easy, but if we're talking about the longer term, these are very different approaches with different requirements of public and private capital. And quite a perennial issue, I would suggest as well, in terms of actually whether you concentrate particularly public investment in particular, for example, in health specialist health services um, in major major cities or whether you have a more uh, distributed model. I mean, one area that you do seem to uh, agree on or, or both be talking about is actually the importance of public engagement in all this and engaging with the citizens. And James, I know that's something that's been very much at the forefront of some of your thinking, including in an article you wrote for us for RSE recently. Um, I mean, how, how do you think we can effectively ensure that citizens are, are meaningfully engaged in the decisions that affect will affect them, and particularly around uh, adapting to and mitigating climate change? Yeah, OK. It, it leads on from what Duncan was, was saying there. I mean, ju- just to pick up on the, the, the high ambition that Glasgow City actually has at the moment. Whether it comes to fruition, who knows? I've been, I, I was born and I've spent nearly all my life in Glasgow, so I truly hope it does. Uh, and I'm old enough to just remember the tail end of the days when Glasgow was a an industrial titan, um, and it was so hugely and rapidly deindustrialized with a multi generational uh, negative impacts socially and health-wise, the so-called Glasgow effect that Harry Burns talks about. And Harry Burns links that, at at least to some extent, with the disempowerment of communities, particularly over their local environment. And uh, when I was in SEPA, as you mentioned again at the front end of our discussion, um, obviously as a regulator, I was really, really interested in that relationship between empowering communities over their environment and improving life expectancy and life outcomes. And I I think there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. If you think about the the green print for investment, which is Glasgow's bid for 30 30 billion, uh, it's going to go on things like retrofitting houses, um, both for climate mitigation and climate adaptation, uh, into district heating, uh, uh, taking power out of the River Clyde, which would be a nice return in, in, in a way to Glasgow's history, um, into investment into public transport and things like nature-based solutions, the, the Clyde Climate Forest. Um, all, all of these you know, stand alone as really valuable investments, and they do each in their own way contribute to what you mentioned earlier as the just transition. And that just transition, and I also talk about just resilience because the, that's the adaptation end of exactly the same thing. Adaptation will drive transition in the way we, we live our lives and the way we do everything. But, you know, that, that comes down to um, the Just Transition Commission had four factors that they looked at. And the first one um, immediately makes you think quite deeply about some of these issues because it's, an order, it, it, it's all about an orderly managed transition from um, jobs that are going to go, like uh, oil and gas, into new jobs of the future. Now, talking about an orderly managed transition, and to be honest, I don't see that happening currently with the oil and gas industry, but, and, and it really, really needs to come, but an orderly managed transition, to me, as an ex-regulator, immediately means there's going to be quite a bit of public policy intervention there. 
Because I don't think the free market is ever going to deliver that. So there needs to be quite a high level of intervention at the national and the local level in order for us to make that transformation to tackle the causes of climate change and the impacts of climate change. We've got a lot of work to do. I would agree with you entirely on that, uh, James. The market isn't going to do this. And and, uh, when you look at big changes uh, in economies and societies, uh, there's imperfect information and uncertainties that markets uh, just never resolve. And in that context, you have to have a clear-minded strategy for the long term from government about where places should be, about what they ought to be. But I don't think we have that yet. I mean, I, I, was, I liked a lot of what the Infrastructure Commission in Scotland did, uh, but was critical of them for failing to ever consider the question of where Scotland would actually be. When would Scotland need infrastructure in 10 years' time, 20 years' time? Because that forces you to take these dif- difficult uh, questions in about what's the economy going to look like, uh, where, in the sense, what are the sectors we think will grow and so on. So I think we miss, we lack long-term decision-taking skills, uh, and I think that's true at the Scottish government level uh, in terms of spatial prioritisation in particular, uh, and actually uh, at, at local government level. So I agree we need that. And in terms of just transition, you're right to point out we're still suffering the effects of deindustrialization that you saw in ISIL. Uh, I'm also a native of Glasgow and studied there and worked there most of my life. Uh, what, what then was an unjust transition that's left us with the horrid legacy of towns that have had no success, you know, for something like uh, 40 years. So I, I agree entirely about that. But how do we get there? You're right to be positive about uh, the plans. I think Glasgow's uh, uh, housing insulation, the tenement insulation strategy is great. Um, I was on the Glasgow Economic Recovery Group, and I'm uh, proud of the fact I was the first person that raised the issue on that group, that uh, insulation of housing and, in a sense, almost going back to the kind of tenement retrofit program that there was in the 1970s. I was on the board of Scottish Homes for 10 years, and we financed a lot of the community-based associations. That had a huge impact in giving a positive drive to neighbourhoods and change and engaging communities, the sort of thing that we are talking about, creating a local that was active and I I think has been hugely beneficial uh, to not just Glasgow but other places uh, as well over the, the, the last 30 years. In terms of how we do this in terms of uh, uh, going wider, I think that's where we need to have some of the the strategic discussions about resources. Uh, For instance, people say, oh, well, um, the Scottish government will put up the money for the tenement refurbishment, but what about everyone else? What about homeowners? When will they get grants? Well, one of the characteristics of homeowners for the last 20, 30 years is they've made huge capital gains. Why don't we develop a finance facility whereby people can equity withdraw uh, to finance the required energy transition of their homes? Everyone who buys a home now sees the energy report uh, and hardly anyone does anything about it. Uh, I do think that with one or two quite strategic decisions about uh, issues uh, in terms of 
the regulatory framework about how you have to bring housing up to standard. I think we can do that uh, without penalising poorer households significantly in the process. If we use uh, some, I think you'd require some fairly courageous political decision-taking. And I, I think that engaging community in all of the decisions is, I think, really important. But engaging consensus, when we get to the long-term issues, there's too much the main parties play off, the opposition plays off the government saying, oh, they've not done enough or this or whatever, or we wouldn't do that. Or And the, the North Sea oil uh, question is a classic example of this. We need much more consensus statement across what needs to be done in the political parties in the Scottish Parliament to actually put their green credentials on the table and not just pick at each other. Otherwise, uh, we will not get the strategic framework within which communities can change. I'm not a political scientist, by the way. I'm certainly going to agree with that. I mean, to, to make it very real in the, the place where I live, and I'm not going to reveal names and so on, there's currently a planning application uh, submitted um, for a very well-known coffee uh, chain to have a drive-through outlet literally quarter of a mile from the little main street, which has many existing cafes. And if you believe in anything like a 20-minute neighbourhood, that is just outrageous. But we have such a, a, a laissez-faire, permissive planning system that I have no confidence <laughs> that that planning application will actually be rejected. So I am naturally, instinctively quite interventionist, and I know that has many dangers attached to it. But another, another uh, uh, I- I example is that there's growing concern across Scotland that uh, big investors are moving into buying up very substantial estates, largely in the Highlands, but not exclusively, in order to, at the moment, probably land bank them, but very soon to start developing them for carbon sequestration so that they can claim carbon offsets and sell them because there's a ready market for that. It worries me that you know, we'll just repeat some of the, 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 the mistakes of the past, like planting conifer forests across the flow country. It will, without some intervention, it will probably end up being done badly and inappropriately without getting the nature-based benefits, the additional ecosystem services, the, the, the community involvement and the community benefits out of it. So I'm a great believer in intervention, and I knock around some investment circles these days because of my connection with the Green Purposes Company. And uh, having spent my life in the public sector, it continues to astonish me that there is no constraint on money. There is vast amounts of ready cash in the private investment sector. What they're looking for are the, 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 the investments to put it into um, and, of course, the rate of return. And I get endlessly frustrated with the investment sector congratulating itself about how open and transparent it is these days, and it reports on its carbon emissions, and it reports on this, that, and the other. And I think, well, yeah, you can report on it, but frankly, if nobody cares, it doesn't get you anywhere. So I, again, I would tend to be much more interventionist, even, dare I say, in the investment and finance sector driving that investment towards all the kind of good things that we've been talking about today. 
how, how do we do how do we do that though? Because I think there is an increasing recognition is that, that the state can't fund it all, that it needs a combination of funders, individuals, um, the, the state, but the private sector as well. But there's been a lot of talk for quite a number of years now about innovative financing and different ways of doing things, but it, it again seems to fall at that sort of practical implementation level. I mean, what would be your sort of key things, James, in terms of actually how do we move from talking about it to actually making that sort of more innovative, creative financing models work and happen? Well, yeah, I'm a great believer in smart regulation, uh, having spent half my life, I hope, <laughs> trying to help deliver it. And good smart regulation, generally speaking, business likes anyway, because it removes risk. Uh, an entire industry sector has to start doing things differently because there's a new regulation coming in. And you can give some years of notice, if you like. So it's, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and it removes that risk from businesses, some of whom may actually want to do that good thing anyway, uh, some who won't, uh, because it removes the risk from the first mover. The entire industry sector has to move together. If you remove risk, well, investors like that straight away. Um, and you know that will incentivize investors to start moving finance into that sector. Um, and there's numerous studies, and I do mean numerous studies, that, again, good, smart regulation uh, encourages innovation and it encourages improved productivity. Again, something investors will like. So it, it may almost be secondhand. You, you regulate in a specific area, which may be about um, uh, purchase of land or something. And certainly one can see ways to do that. And the Scottish government is already beginning to think about that um, with, with some legislation potentially coming through in the, in, in the very near future. And the investors will then follow. And, and the investors have to invest according to the new regulatory requirements. I think that that's generally uh, the case that uh, effective regulation and smart regulation Will make a huge difference. Um, I have a couple of concerns uh, in this. One would be that the regulatory framework that's emerging in the UK is largely for uh, companies uh, that have assets of more than 500 million. Uh, in other words, small and medium enterprise is not really being captured to the same extent. Um, can we rely those on those that run or those that support through finance, uh, small enterprise that they will put in place sustainable goals? No, we can't. So that we do have to think about uh, how that gets extended. But I'm really impressed by the ways in which uh, both corporations and the financial sector have taken on board precisely the points that it's about risk. It's a risk, longer term risk. It's also about investor preferences. All these things matter. But I'm worried about, first of all, uh, what about the um, smaller sector? The other concern I have, and here we get back to cities, is that in some cultures, uh, in some countries, uh, investment, uh, major investment by cities is made through bond markets. They borrow, they have experience, they know how to use finance, and they'll know how to use green finance. I have a concern about uh, not only Scotland, but the UK as a whole, we have the most centralised local government finance system in Western, in, well, more or less the world, uh, apart from a few uh, 
still social, socialist uh, or Stalinist states. Um, and in that context, uh, we set not only how much tax revenue can be collected, but the tax base is not reimagined to think about environmental goods and bads along with property uh, to actually provide a much more coherent uh, fiscal base uh, for uh, local authorities and, and well, in, in, in cities and city regions. I think Scotland's got to get cracking on that. I produced a paper for the David Hume Institute this summer. Uh, it's called Scotland of Better Places. And one of the recommendations is about land tax and local government tax. And that was the one area of recommendation that every political party said, no, we're not interested in that. Uh, well, why? Because they look unpopular relative to the others. And they, somebody has to sort the local government finance system in, in the Scottish context. As they do that, uh, it's about the autonomies of local authorities as well as uh, uh, the responsibilities that are, they're increasingly given. Now, we've said a lot of this change is local, so let's get a bigger local component to the tax base. Let's give more local autonomies so that Glasgow doesn't always have to ask the Scottish Government or Westminster to do every single thing essentially uh, that it does. Uh, and in that context, let's put in place, I'd like to see every major city in Scotland have a partnership with some of the major financial institutions where they get on to economy, two or three key staff from all the big finance players in Edinburgh should be providing two or three key staff to a green financing strategy group within each of the major city regions because they know how to do it. The cities don't know how to do it. If you look at whether it's a city strategy in digital or green finance or whatever, we talk really big ideas and the amount of thinking capacity and senior uh, executive capacity within local government is just not there. The people that are there are great. There's just not enough of them. You know, to do the digital revolution in, uh, in Glasgow is down to about two people. You know, and, and that's simply because of the staffing constraints they have. And the environmental stuff will run into the same constraints. So, yeah, let's look at financing. But let's, again, let's get serious about it uh, and um, get some of the powers down to the local scale and get some of the expertise working at that scale too. Because we have the expertise and the funds in Scotland, but they're not at that scale. Yeah, I'd, I would agree absolutely on that last point. I mean, we're in, in the Green Purposes Company, we issued a, a, a survey recently of investment uh, worldwide in nature-based uh, solutions, and uh, particularly for the private sector, obviously. And yeah, it's beginning to happen. I mean, we, we called it a new asset class, nature-based solutions, which, which can potentially give the kind of rates of return that... Uh, private investors would look for. We didn't end up with that many uh, recommendations from the report. I think it was only four or five. But the one that intrigued me the most was exactly that point, that the in investment sector, having fantastic expertise, of course, within their own professional realm, um, but what, the, what is needed is a collaboration, a, a partnership. You could call it uh, co-production and co-delivery between the investment sector and in my particular uh, sector of interest, the environmental sector, um, so that the green investments 
are good investments, but they're also good environmentally. And we've got to break down those boundaries. It goes back to you know, years of thinking about sustainable development. You cannot have sustainable development. You cannot have multiple benefits without breaking down these old-fashioned boundaries between disciplines and professions. Absolutely. And going back to a bit of research history, um, prior to 1989, all uh, investment in public and non-profit housing in Scotland basically came from the government. Uh, There was a really significant effort on part of the government agency at that time, uh, Housing Corporation and then Scottish Homes, to build new connections in social housing finance between the bond markets, major lenders, and small and large associations in terms of being able to uh, resource uh, uh, expenditures in housing. Like, for instance, in Glasgow, the Glasgow Housing Association takes bonds of £300 million off the capital market to improve low-income housing in Glasgow. And it's managed to keep doing that through the recession. That required a financial revolution, but people worked at it. And it's in place. We could similarly have green financing on a whole range of things if we actually had task forces putting these things in place now. So my my tone in this discussion might have sounded a little critical. It's because I spend a lot of time out in Scotland and see how things work in other places. Uh, And I do think uh, that we have great intentions. We have many good people but we're just not making that transition from the debate, the, the desire to be green, to be fairer, and so on. And I think that's written all across Scotland. It's great. But whether it's at neighbourhoods, whether it's at city level, or whether it's at Scotland level, delivering it is still a long way behind what we need. I mean, the, the important, you'll forgive me because I, I can't resist a plug for RSE here, which of course you're both fellows, but that importance of interdisciplinarity and, and a cross-sectoral approach, you know, is, is represented in the fellowship, which, as you know, we're quite unusual for a National Academy in covering the breadth of academic disciplines, but also reaching into practitioners from business and, and public service. But, I mean, you've given some really nice examples there of how you build capacity and capability through collaboration. Well, I guess the other dimension that's important there is leadership. And, James, I know this is something that you've been reflecting on. What sort of formal style of leadership do we need to sort of help drive that, drive from the debate in, in Duncan's terms into delivery? Yeah, I, this is such a difficult topic. <laughs> and leadership is so important in, in, in every area of life. But as we're trying to undertake genuine transformation, it, it's particularly important. And um, I, I remember many, many years ago actually being asked by the Scottish government to, to give a kind of keynote at a, a one-day meeting on leadership for climate change. I'm wondering if you were there, Rebecca, or maybe even organised it. And it scared me to death because I thought, what do I know about leadership? And But it, it drove me, and I'm being absolutely honest here, it drove me to do some Googling, um, other search engines are available, uh, on leadership styles. And I came across... An, it, it was new to me, and I never pretended to know anything about leadership, and I still don't. Um, the, it, it is the formally known style of leadership, which is called authentic leadership. And I never know whether people know what it is or don't know what it is. You know, I'm genuinely that ignorant. 
But it is a style of leadership that I think at the personal level, and we can open it up to kind of um, uh, organizational wide leadership and so on. It, it's a style of leadership at the personal level that I think is uh, very well suited to uh, the, the kind of transformations that we need to undertake at the moment. It, it's, it's all about um, personal credibility. It's all about personal honesty. It's about uh, surrounding yourself with people who know much more than you, <laughs> which I certainly always tried to do all of my life. And, and it's about dele- delegating uh, authority extensively and widely, but always, of course, uh, re- retaining the accountability. Um, it's about encouraging others to show leadership as well. And, and authentic leaders create more leaders. Uh, they don't want followers. They want others who lead as well. So it, it, it's if anyone is interested, I would really suggest looking it up. I, it, to me, it, it is a vital style of leadership for the kind of transformations we need in future. That degree of honesty and integrity and being open about not always having the answers. In certain circumstances, we're experimenting. Uh, be honest about that. And if it fails, be honest that it fails and we'll try something different. To me, that takes people with you And it's a kind of culture that engenders uh, a a willingness and, dare I say, even an enthusiasm amongst others to go with you and and to to, to seek out that transformation that at the end of the day is going to make all of our lives better, safer and healthier. And and I think it also allows risks um, and allows learning. Um, because it isn't about, um, you know, it, it does allow for trying things different and and sometimes they, they won't work. I mean, I wonder if we might just before we close, just turn back to Glasgow, um, since you're you're both from there and have spent most of your working working lives there. And just wonder if you could reflect briefly on what excites you at the moment in terms of what Glasgow is doing, whether in terms of mitigating climate change or in terms of adapting to it. Duncan. I think that uh, there when we talk about Glasgow, I, I talk about the Glasgow city region because I think there are two scales of governance, of governance that matter in this. One is community and neighbourhood. Uh, the other is the wider metropolitan region. Uh, unfortunately, municipality is not the right scale for anything in, in, in this discussion. So let, But, but let's assume that uh, municipalities are collaborative and their leadership is of the style that, uh, that James talked about. I think that there is an openness and a willingness uh, to look at this in a kind of very non-ideological, how do, how do we fix this? Um, and I'm encouraged by that. Um, because I have a particular interest in infrastructure, and I want to see an infrastructure strategy that works for the overall city region, but also articulates neighbourhood scales. I can't be that excited about where we are right now. I mean, there's lots of good ideas, and I think the housing project is fantastic. So I'll be really enthusiastic about that. And I think the Glasgow connectivity ideas are good. And I think the innovation zones have all been good. The bits are good. The overall framework lacks strategic grip. And I think that... uh, I think sometimes James and I have sounded a bit like unreconstructed Stalinists, James, uh, saying that we can do this 
I don't think that's where we are. And I certainly believe that the market has to do a, a lot of this. And uh, in that context, a much better resourced local government structure uh, with people. There are people of real capability there, just not enough of them to make this happen. So I do think that um, there's lots of good people, lots of good ideas. And uh, I think that Glasgow is held back and other cities are held back by the context of governments uh, that they now operate within and that endlessly disagree with each other about things. Just before I turn to James, I just wonder, is, is there anywhere in the world from, you know, the work that you've been doing, Duncan, that you'd, or any cities or city regions that you'd point to so we've got everything right, but you think they're in a, a, sort of a good place in terms of maybe having that join up, having that strategic approach. Is there anywhere you think that we could learn from? Well, I mean, we learn different things from different cities. I think that a lot of the north and, cent- and uh, almost central European cities have been fantastic in taking decisions about buildings and infrastructure and parks. Uh, I think about styles of governance and grasping the big issues. I mean, I think Vancouver is uh, a really excellent example of uh, city leaders uh, uh, who have a strong set of officials that support them and take forward these ideas in a reasonably orderly strategic fashion. But you'll find many other places. Uh, I mean, I do think that some of the cities in the United States have made remarkable progress because of the good leadership and also resource base despite the uh, the sort of uh, 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 flat earth strategy of Mr. Trump. I mean, actually, a lot of American cities, because they had that power uh, and the capability of actually moved forward. So I don't think there's any one single place that we see. And I do think there is a talent and ability and institutions in Glasgow and in Edinburgh and in Dundee and Aberdeen and the other, other places that I consider cities um, to actually move forward, but they don't just have enough space or resource to do it. Yeah, James, what about for you in terms of what excites you or encourages you about what's going on in, in Glasgow? Yeah, in, interesting question, and you're right. We have been thinking about it uh, recently and actively right now in Climate Ready Clyde because we're at that transition point between having done the the research, gathering the evidence, and creating the adaptation action plan and now moving into delivering it, which is a very different task. So we've been thinking very actively about some of those aspects. And why did we base um, Climate Ready Clyde's strategy on Glasgow City Region? Um, I think it is, and having spent nearly all my life here, I I hope I'm right, that there is a a sense of identity to Glasgow City Region. There is a Pretty strong feeling of common interest, I think, across it, despite you know a, a history of many deep inequalities and so on. Um, it, it has an advantage of these days a pretty broad-based economy as well, so it it can be flexible and it can can shift and and and, and duck and dive a bit. And recently, I've been really excited by the degree of ambition being shown. Um, right across the city region from Glasgow City Council to, to, to many others. Um, but what what is lacking, and I think I'm agreeing with, with Duncan here, at least to, to some extent, is governance structures. And this isn't 
this isn't related to Glasgow. I think it's a common feature right around the world. We don't have the governance structures that can really deliver what you might call the wicked solutions to the wicked problems we're increasingly facing uh, now and in the future. Climate change is a wicked problem. It's multidimensional, multi-sectoral. Uh, we don't have the governance structures that can really tackle that. But I think they're beginning to be seen within the Glasgow city region. There is the city region itself, which is a kind of fairly loose, informal structure, but it's there and it's functioning. There's things like the Clyde Mission, uh, which which is working to, to, to re-energise the whole of the kind of Clyde River corridor. Uh, Glasgow City's recently released a nine-year green plan, which involves the region as well. Um, there's things like the Central Glasgow Carbon Innovation District, which is led by the university, but involves numerous stakeholders within Glasgow City Centre. So I think we're kind of feeling our way towards new and different governance structures. And I'm very keen in Climate Ready Clyde that we try and develop a new structure. And we're very actively thinking about that at the moment, which transcends and, and cuts across the old kind of vertically uh, vertical forms of delivery of, of, of governance and genuinely allows us to tackle these wicked problems. That sounds a, a nice positive note on which to change. We're not there yet, but there's an appetite for change, there's an energy for change, there's some new initiatives, there's some coming together and collaboration. Um, thank you so much, Professor Duncan McLennan and Professor James Curran, for share, spending time to us to, for today and sharing your expertise on uh, climate change and its impact and implications for cities. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website, rse.org.uk, or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. <laughs>